right, let's get out our Bibles and let's go. Isaiah 9, 6. Isaiah 9, 6. Uh, you can get out your Bibles if you didn't bring a Bible. There's a blue one underneath the seat you're sitting in. Uh, Isaiah 9, 6. And the blue Bible's on page 638-ish. 630-something. You'll, you'll find it there. Isaiah 9, 6. We've been sitting in this one singular text now uh, for four weeks, and we will be in this text even on Christmas Eve. Isaiah 9, 6. Um, and we've been looking at these kind of uh, attributes, these, these names, what Jesus will be called, these titles that will be ascribed to him uh, in this text. And the reason why we've chosen to kind of sit in this one singular text for, for really five weeks um, is so that we would become filled with the person of Christ. Not that we would just glance at him and say, wow, that's amazing, but we would say, this is overwhelming, the person of Jesus. Spurgeon, in a sermon on Isaiah 9, 6, said this, and I love how he said it. He said, a look will save the soul, but patient meditation alone can fill the mind with the knowledge of the Savior. And that's what we want to have happen over the past four weeks and going into Christmas Eve, is that your mind would be filled with the knowledge of Jesus. And so that's what we're going to do again this morning, Isaiah 9-6. We're here at Flourishing Grace, we believe that this is the word of God. And so in honor and reverence to it, if you're able, would you stand with me as I read it for us this morning? I'm going to read 6 and 7, but we'll be camping out in Isaiah 9-6. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called... Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. You may have a seat. So we come to today, we come, we've been looking, as I said, at these, at these uh, titles given to Christ. He shall be called Wonderful. He shall be called Counselor. He shall be called Mighty God. And now we come to the title Everlasting Father. And I knew, I knew that this was going to be the one. This title was going to be the one that kind of is the hardest one for us to get through together as a church. I knew that today when, I, when we said, hey, Jesus will be called Everlasting Father, that people in the room are going to be like, wait, hang on, that doesn't make any sense. I knew that we were going to have to do a little extra work this morning. So I'm just preparing you. You're going to have to do a little extra work. You can't just sit back and listen. You've got to lean in a little bit here. Because it's not that Isaiah is saying something that's confusing, it's not, that, it's not that he's saying something in, in a cryptic way. It's not that he's wrong. It's just that you and I, in a kind of our modern Christianity, have become very comfortable with this, with this idea of, the concept of, the Trinity. The Trinity. And at first glance, this, this idea of Jesus being everlasting Father um, doesn't compute for us. You see, we live um, and we've grown comfortable with the idea of the Trinity. Um, the Trinity kind of summed up in the simplest form is um, that there is one singular God. Just, just one God. There always has been and always will be in all space and all time and everywhere there is one singular God. How many gods? One. 
and for all time, for all of human history, right, um, that the people of Israel believed that there was one God, right? Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is what? One. Okay, you guys are catching on, right? One. There's only one singular God. When Elijah goes up to the mountain and the prophets of Baal and Asher, there's like this competition of whose God's going to light the fire, right? They, have, they both build their altars and they're like, okay, if your God's real, let him light the fire. Elijah's not like, oh man, I hope they don't, I hope they don't show up today. Yeah, what if, what if Baal and Asher actually do show up and what if they light the fire? No, he's like, they don't exist. Right? Elijah's like, well, I don't know where they are. What are they doing? Are they relieving themselves? Right? Are they, are they going to the bathroom? Like, I love, it's, it's amazing. It's a, that's one of my favorite stories in the Bible, right? If you don't know what I'm talking about, go read it later. Elijah's like, let me show you who the one true God is. And he prays, and God sends fire from heaven and just boom, disintegrates the altar. He's not worried. He knows, right? He knows there's only one, one God. And some people would say, well, but Elohim is, is the plural word for God. And so they actually did believe there were multiple gods. No, 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 no. Elohim is the word for deity. You're right. And it is plural. You're right. But it's also ascribed to judges because there's more than one judge. It's also ascribed to angels because there's more than one angel. It's also ascribed to false pagan gods. And there was no point in time that they believed that those false pagan gods were real. They weren't worried about that. There's only one singular God. But that one singular God has existed infinitely for all eternity as a community of three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. Now, our sermon today is not on the Trinity, but we have to do this work in order to understand what's going on here. This, this language, Trinity, did not come for some time after the resurrection of Christ. It, it came uh, almost 200 years later. About 200 years after the resurrection of Christ, as the first time we see this language being used of Trinity, um, where, where, where theologians and pastors sat down and they said, okay, how does this work? How does it work? I don't understand. I know there's only one God, but when I read my Bible, when I pour over the pages of Scripture, I see, this, I see Jesus, who I believe fully to be God, who claims he's God, who says the Father and I are one, and yet he talks about the Father separately, and then he talks about the Spirit separately. How does this work? And it wouldn't be for another hundred years until um, the, the, all of the pastors kind of in the known world sit down together and say, okay, humbly before our God, as we pour over Scripture, how do we best communicate this? We don't have words for this. Our God is beyond us. They said, well, one singular God, three distinct persons. All the same God, three distinct persons. They are distinct. They are individuals, but yet they are the same now, some people say, that doesn't make any sense. I have known people who have walked away from, from their faith because they cannot grasp that. If you were here last week, the fact that you cannot grasp an infinitely mighty God should not come as a shock to anybody. Augustine said it this way, and I love this. He said, um, the, the man who denies the Trinity is in danger of losing his salvation, but the man who seeks to understand the Trinity is in danger of losing his mind. Okay? Now, Augustine is joking because Augustine wrote perhaps one of the greatest works ever on the Trinity, okay? He did seek to understand the Trinity. He did want to know. He's just saying, it is hard to understand. You can't wrap your mind around an infinite God. It is an incredibly difficult thing to do. But we are a modern people, and we want all of the information. I demand to know, and I demand, I have the right to understand it, right? In my house... 
When Alexa can't answer the question, we get ticked. We call her names. She's so dumb. An idiot. I can't believe she doesn't know that. She knows infinitely more than I do. But when she's not right, or she doesn't know, or she messes up, she doesn't understand me, she's stupid, okay? Um, she, I'm talking about an inanimate object, and I've given her, oh my gosh, Josh, you did it. It, it is stupid, right? Alexa drives us crazy. We want all of the information, and yet when we can't access it, it frustrates us. Friends, if you are frustrated by a God whom you can't fully understand, and you say, I walk away, I give up, I'm not going to try anymore because I can't wrap my mind around it. You will never know anything of the one true God because he is infinitely beyond us. You will never fully understand him, but we should give our lives to knowing him. For the past 2,000 years, we've been a people who have by and large accepted and grown comfortable with the concept of the Trinity. One singular God existing for all eternity as a community of persons, three persons to be exact, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. Now here's the question, Isaiah 9, 6. Let's get into our text for today. Which person of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, or God the Spirit, is being described in Isaiah 9, 6? Not a trick question. The Son, yes, God the Son is being described. And how is he being described? Wonderful counsel. Mighty, mighty God, everlasting Father. When we hear that, and we know it's God the Son, and yet we hear him described as mighty Father, we say, wait, no, 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 no. God the Father is the Father. Jesus can't be the Son. It doesn't make any sense. It's like Isaiah's wrong. It doesn't, something, something's messed up. What's going on? How can this be? But look what else we see in the text. A child who will become a counselor. Any, anybody ever go to counseling and you show up and you walk in and your counselor is sitting there. He's ready for you to, he's ready to counsel you, but he's four. Four years old. Does that need to happen to anybody? No, because it doesn't make any sense. My four-year-old, my three-year-old doesn't give me advice. He tries to. But I never listen. How can this be? A God who will also be a prince, a human who will be everlasting, a peaceful government that will never come to an end. None of these things make any sense. Listen, 2020 is almost over. You've made it. This has been a highly politically contentious year. Has anybody ever known of a government that has been completely peaceful? Has that ever existed? Has that government never come to an end? Governments are not peaceful, and they all come to an end. Everything being described here doesn't make any sense unless you put it into the context of the coming Messiah, the one who will rule and one who will reign. When Isaiah is, just, is giving these, these, these attributes of Christ, he says he will be called. He's giving him titles. It's not names, they're titles, right? I'm a pastor, okay? I'm called pastor. But that's not my name. My name is Joshua. My mom and dad gave me that name, right? My name is not Pastor. But, it, but Pastor describes what I do, right? And so when he's called Wonderful, when he's called Counselor, when he's called Mighty God, when he's called Everlasting Father, when he's called Prince of Peace, it's describing him. That's what Isaiah is doing here. It's a description of him, not his name. Jesus is not God the Father, but Jesus is called Everlasting Father in order to describe him. Let me say that again. Jesus is not 
God the Father. Jesus is called everlasting Father in order to describe him. So what does Isaiah mean by this? That's the first question that I want us to answer. And then we'll talk about how does Jesus fit into that bucket, into that category of everlasting Father. What does Isaiah actually mean when he says this? Is Jesus our biological dad? Did Jesus give birth to us? Is that what he's saying? Uh, no, that is absolutely not what he's saying. Uh, again, it's, it's, it's metaphorical language. Let me show you a few Old Testament texts that will help us kind of put into context how Isaiah would have seen this, right? Isaiah doesn't live in our world. He lived um, in ancient Israel. And he's writing in the context of ancient Israel. And so how do people in ancient Israel view God as father? Well, first, let's look at Isaiah himself. Isaiah 64, 8 and 9. We'll be up here on the screen. Isaiah says this. He says, But now, O Lord, you are our father. There it is. Biological dad. Did he give birth to us? Look what comes next. We are the clay. You are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not our iniquity forever. Behold, please look. We are all your people. Here's what Isaiah is saying. He says, you are our father. But then he goes on to describe the, how God is like father. Not because he gave birth to them, but just like a potter forms a pot out of clay, he has made them. He has fashioned them. He has created them. And so when he says God as Father, he's not thinking of birth. He's thinking of creation. You've molded us. You've shaped us. You've made us. But now, is God everyone's Father? No. Isaiah goes on to describe a special relationship here. He says, all the people who are on the... He says, uh, behold, please look. We are all your people. He's talking about the nation of Israel. So about the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel have been, have been chosen by God to be his people. Look how Moses puts it in Deuteronomy 14, 1 and 2. You are the sons of the Lord your God, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. And the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, right? So all the people on the face of the earth, God says, these ones, these are going to be to, like my son. These are going to be to me like my kids, and I'm going to be like their father. Not their actual biological father, but that's the relationship we are going to have. Again, God says it to Moses in Exodus 4, 21 through 23. This is the Lord speaking. He says to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles I've put in your power. Behold, I will harden his heart so he will not let the people go. Now look at verse 22. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. And if you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. What is going on here? Two things that I want you to see. God views his people, and that time his firstborn son, the nation of Israel. And who is, who is the nation of Israel today? Who is... Who, who has taken the form of Israel in the eyes of God today? It's church. He views us as his firstborn son. There's two things we see in this text. Number one is a purpose. 
In, in ancient Israel, the firstborn son is the son that's going to grow up and take over the family business. And when dad grows old, too old to attend the crops or to shepherd the, the cattle or whatever the heck dad does for a living, make the pots, whatever he does, um, the son's going to take care of dad. And God says, Israel to me is like a firstborn son. I have a purpose for him. Let him go so that he may do the things that I want him to do. Enslaved in Egypt, he cannot do what I want him to do. And I have a purpose there. Let him go so he can do what I want him to do. God has a purpose for his son. And number two, he has a passion for his son. He is absolutely passionate about his firstborn son. He says to, he says to Pharaoh, listen, if you do not let him go, let me show you how precious my son is to me. If you do not let him go, I will take what is equally precious to you. I'll take your firstborn son. If you do not let my people go, you will know the pain that I'm experiencing by you having them in captivity because I will take what is equally precious to you. God's people are as precious to him as a son. And so therefore, he is like to us as a father. He also has a purpose for us as a father would have a purpose for his son. Here is the theme of God as father we find in the Old Testament. God has chosen a people for himself to be to him as his children. They're not his biological children. They live as children. And he plays a role of loving father who disciplines, defends, and redeems. Again and again and again. So when Isaiah says the Messiah will be called everlasting father, he is not thinking in the sense of Trinity at all, but rather in the attributes of a perfect father. Isaiah doesn't have a concept. He's not thinking of Trinity. He's not thinking of Father and Son and Holy Spirit. That's not what he's thinking. It's not in his mind. And he's also not thinking of God as some sort of biological dad. As neither one of those things have ever, ever entered into Isaiah's mind. He is simply saying, this is what he'll be like. This is what he'll be like. He'll be wonderful. He'll be a counselor. Be a mighty God, an everlasting Father. So the next question that we're going to spend the rest of our time on is simply this. How is Jesus like an everlasting Father? How is Jesus like an everlasting Father? I'm going to give you three things. We could, we could give you 20, but I'm going to give you three ways that Jesus is like an everlasting Father. First is this. He, Jesus, is perfectly loving. He's perfectly loving, right? Good dads love their kids, right? Listen, I know not everybody in the room, not everybody watching online grew up with a, with a good dad. Some, some of you never knew your dad. Some of you, your dad passed away when you were young. Some of you, your dad left when you were young. Some of you, your dads mistreated you. Some of you, you your dads were addicted to substances. Some of you, um, you just don't know what it's like to have a good dad. But you do know this, good dads love their kids. That's undisputable. Good dads love their kids. And so if Jesus is like a perfect father, everlasting father, he would love his kids perfectly. Look how Paul puts it in Romans 5, 6 through 11. For while we, that's you and me, while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one would scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even die. Here's what Paul is saying. And for the righteous person, for somebody who is truly, genuinely just 
just amazing, right? The Mother Teresa's of the world, the Billy Graham's, like, this is becoming harder and harder to find uh, examples of this because, well, those people don't exist much anymore. But truly righteous people, like genuinely kind, sweet, globally known people, right? Some people might say, if given the choice, I would die in their place. I would die for that person. They're that valuable to humanity, okay? Some people would, some people wouldn't. And maybe, maybe you would die for a close friend. There's somebody in your life that you would die for. I wouldn't die for your best friend. I wouldn't. No, heck no. But you might, right? But here's what God does. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, while we were wretched and broken and filthy and rebellion against him, Christ died for you, for me. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. You see, Christ's death on the cross reveals his infinite love for us, this perfect love for us, that while we were his enemy, while we were weak, while we were sinners, Paul says, weak sinners, enemies, in complete total rebellion against him, he said, man, I love you and I'll die for you. I'll die in your place. That you might not endure the wrath of God, I will endure it on your behalf, and I will clothe you in my own righteousness. My boys, on their worst day, I would surely die for them. On their worst day, I would give my life for them. On that day when one of them comes home from college and says, I, I, I got a girl knocked up, and I don't even know her. Oh, and by the way, I got a face tattoo. Oh, and I haven't paid my rent in six months and I need some cash. Oh, and I'm leaving the country because there's a warrant for my arrest. Oh, and dad, I hate you and I never want to talk to you again. On that day, I would die for my boy in a heartbeat. Why? Dads, why? To love them. Call them their dad. So dads do. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter how broken he is. Doesn't, doesn't matter how jacked up his life becomes. On that day, I die for my boy, no matter what, in a heartbeat, without thinking about it, because he's my son. I'm his dad. What Paul is saying here in Romans, and what I'm trying to communicate to you, is that that's how much Jesus loves you. When you showed up broken, when you showed up incomplete, when you failed him, when you were at your lowest, on your worst day, when you had rebelled fully and completely and totally against him, he said, I love you and I will die in your place. Is he not to you like an everlasting perfect father? That's how he loves you. There is nothing that you could do that could make him love you any less. He is our perfect 
everlasting Father. Second, he is, he is everlasting. We can't spend all of our time focusing on father, father because that word distracts us. He's everlasting. He's everlasting, right? Um, I said this last week. If you, when we come to Christmas, we, we, our minds tend to, to kind of settle in on the birth of Jesus as it should because that's what we do at Christmas. That's the point, right? The word became flesh, God putting on flesh and dwelling among us, right? That's what we're captivated by, the humanness of a baby being born in a manger. Like, that's what we sing about. That's what we celebrate. And that's what we think about. But if that's, if that's where it stops, it's an incomplete thought. And you're missing out on so much of it. Last week, we talked about uh, the, our mighty God. And there's might in the manger. But that infant is also infinite. He infinitely existed before that moment. That day when Jesus was born was not his first day. He never had a first day. He is infinite. He has always been, and he always will be. It means that in that moment when that little baby was born, that was not his first day. And it also means that when he was nailed to the cross and he breathed his last, it was not his last. Because he's infinite. And our infinite Father lives. He lives. Amen? If he does not live, I do not wish to live another hour, said Martin Luther. He's infinite. It means he lives. He is our everlasting God. Again, Paul, Romans 6, 5 through 11, says it this way. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin for one who has died has been set free from sin now if we have died with Christ we believe that we will also live with him we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again no, death no longer has dominion over him for the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he now lives, he lives to God. So you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Death no longer has dominion over him. He is infinite, everlasting. Therefore, we have been made alive to God in him. When Christ died on the cross, this curse of sin and the curse of death died with him. And when the infinite one arose from the grave, we, you and I, those who have been united to him in that moment, were reunited to God. The curtain in the temple was torn in two, and we are given the gift of infinite life in that moment. Paul puts it this way in Romans 6, through 23. But now... You have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Here's the thing. Going back to the father piece again. Yes, he's infinite. But dads love to give gifts to their kids. Okay? It, in, in probably inappropriate ways. 
We love to give gifts to our kids, grossly overspending on our kids. And I watch dads do this, and I think, what are you doing? What is wrong with you? You can't can't spend that amount of money on your kid. And I confess that this year, my, my, so my, my, we got a three-year-old. He doesn't care, right? You give him Play-Doh and some cardboard. And he's like, this is the best Christmas ever, right? That's awesome. He can just stay that way forever. That'd be amazing. But the six-year-old, he's now caught on. And he's fallen in love with the most expensive boy toys, Legos. And don't tell him this, but this year I've spent an obscene amount of money on a Lego set. On one, one Lego set. One Lego, one Lego set. It's like a fortune. And if any other dad in the room did it, I'd be like, what is wrong with you? But Desiree's like, are you sure? I'm like, yes, let's get him that. It's amazing. It's going to be so much fun. Christmas morning in his face. And he's my boy. I want him to have it, right? I want him to have it. I want him to have everything that he wants. I want him to have it. I want him to play and enjoy and delight and be glad. And so we do dumb things. Any dads in the room get their kids Christmas gifts this year? Yeah, okay. Any, any dads get their kid the gift of everlasting life this year? No? Didn't, didn't nail that one, huh? Anybody get them anything better than everlasting life? You can't one-up that one? No. No. Jesus lives forever, and he gives the gift of forever to those who love him, just like a perfect, perfect, heavenly, sweet, good, everlasting father. He lives forever. He is infinite, but he gives the gift of forever to those who love him because he wants you, just like a good daddy wants you to have the best. He wants you to have everything that we give him. And, and even though it cost him everything, it cost him everything, he gave it to you, spent it, he bought it. Gave it to you. He's clothed you in his own righteousness and he's purchased you with his blood. Third and finally, last one, he lives to care for us. Every moment of every day, he's fighting for you. The author of Hebrews, Hebrews 7, 22 through 25, puts it this way, he says, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing the office, right? The reason why they're not doing the priest thing anymore is because they died. And so we had to get a new one. And then that one died. We had to get a new one. This went on for a very long time. But Jesus, he holds the priesthood permanently because he continues how long? Forever. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives, since he infinitely lives, every hour, every minute of every day, from all eternity to all eternity, he infinitely lives to make intercession for them. Right now, if you are in Christ and you long to draw near to God, he is interceding for you. He stands between God the Father and you as as an infinite God, as an everlasting Father, and says, that one's mine. If you've given your life to him, he says, that one is mine. 
If you've entrusted him with all that you are and you view him as your king who sits on the throne of your heart, he says, that one is mine. And when you fail, when you sin, when you sin against your God and God begins sees your sin and sin makes his, hot, his heart hot, he looks upon Christ and he says, righteousness. Jesus says, that one's mine. I've made her righteous. I've made him righteous. And God looks upon you in the midst of your sin and he sees his son with whom he is well pleased and there is delight and there is joy and there is affection for you in that moment. He is constantly fighting for your flourishing. So often we get trapped in the idea that the goal of life is to just get, get saved, live a decent life, and then die and go to heaven. That's not it. Right now he is fighting for your flourishing. That these days that you live on this earth would be lived with complete, utter joy in him. That you would truly flourish. He's fighting for the flourishing of those who draw near to God through him. He, Jesus, is like our everlasting father. He has proven his perfect love for you on the cross. He has secured the greatest gift for you in his resurrection. And you can always infinitely go to him because he lives to care for us he is not angry or impatient he's not too busy i know some of you guys grew up with dads who were just too busy for you he's not too busy for you right we talked about this last week he has infinite might yes he's doing a lot you know, managing the temperature at which the sun burns, managing, managing the orbit of the earth, giving life to, and sustaining life of all things. But he has infinite more power. He is never too busy for you. Never. He's not angry. Some of you grew up in a religion or a faith where you were taught that God is angry with you. Every single time you do something wrong, every single time that you get out of line, every single time you sin, man, God is just angry with you. No, he's not angry with you. He's not angry with you. He loves you. The perfect father would love you. He's not angry. He's not impatient. He's not too busy. Um, my, my biological father, my dad, passed away this year. Um, he died this year. And uh, turns out he's, he's not an everlasting uh, father. Um, just a temporary one. Some of you guys like this. <laughs> if he was here, he'd think it's funny. Uh, <laughs> He always was making stupid jokes constantly. Like, he couldn't, it was embarrassing to, to introduce him to people because he would, just, he would just joke the entire time. You're like, Dad, the person doesn't get your jokes. They don't, they don't understand. Like, the, like and he's, he's just eating it up, right? He, he was just a f joyful man. He loved to sing and play games and always constantly joyful, always. And he loved, he loved spending time with his kids and his grandkids, because that's what God, dads do. Dads love spending time with their kids, and they love spending time with their grandkids. That's what they love to do. One of my favorite memories in, in recent years, anyways, uh, is probably, well, probably five years ago now, maybe even a little bit more than that. Um, he just drove me to the airport, uh, not here in Salt Lake City, but back in Illinois, and it was two hours from their house, and it was just he and I, he just drove me to the airport, and just, just talking, telling stories, and hanging out, and just hanging out, spending time. And I love that memory. And he loved that time. You could just tell that he was just having so much joy in that moment because we just got time together. And so I leave you with this. 
if Jesus is our perfect, everlasting Father, if that's what he's like to us, it's not his name, but that's that's what he is, that's what he's like, he loves to spend time with you. He delights in it. And so how much time are you giving him? Are you drawing near to him? Are you delighting in his love? Are you rejoicing in the gift? Are you finding fulfillment in the one who is interceding for you right now? Are you spending time getting to know him through his word? Are you listening for his voice in the still hours of the morning or the still hours of the evening? Have you devoted your life to prayer? Are you drawing near to the one who is like unto you, an everlasting father? Do you know him? Are you giving him the time that he so longs for? Because that is what an everlasting father would want. He wants to be with you, draw near to you, to know you and to be known by you. That is our savior, that is our king our wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we come before you this morning. We declare in this place that you have loved us far greater than any earthly father could ever love us. You've given us a gift far greater than any earthly father will ever give. And you have fought for us and are fighting for us now harder than any earthly father could possibly fight. So this morning, in this place, knowing that you are not our biological father, you are our God. You are our king. And we cannot fathom, we cannot fathom that level of fatherly love which you have extended and shown to us. So we worship you. We give you all of the glory, all of the fame, all of the praise, all of the awe and wonder. To you forever and ever. Amen. Would you guys go ahead and stand?